Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch. I'm your host, Heather, as always. And today's episode is Seven Things You Must Ask Your Doctor. And the inspiration for this came to me because I really was thinking of a lot of the common questions that my patients come to me and questions that they have a lot of confusion around. So I want to help clarify those common threads and also things that I as an internist want to sort of relay upon to my patients that this is particularly important when they may not think that it is. So I'm going to start with seven things that you want to ask or have conversations with your doctor about. So the first one on my checklist is what is your ASCVD score? So an ASCVD score is a calculation for your future risk for heart disease. And the reason ASCVD score is important is because it determines if you are going to need a statin medication or not. So a statin medication is Lipitor or Coreg or Atorvastatin or Ruvastatin. You may have heard of some of those and tends to end in that word statin. And statins are cholesterol-lowering medications. Now, this is really important because many of my patients come to me and they've either been on them for a long time or they were recently put on and not sure if they really need one, but they do know that their cholesterol is high. So when you get your cholesterol checked, you get those lab values back and you see that your total cholesterol is usually that number on the top. And the reference range for most laboratories is, it, you know, it says it wants you to, it to be under 200. So my patient will say, my cholesterol is way too high. It's 212 or it's 215. And also listed in that cholesterol score is a LDL cholesterol and an HDL cholesterol. The HDL cholesterol is the good cholesterol. That's the one you actually want to be a little bit higher. So H stands for higher and that stands with an H. And the LDL is the one that you want to be lower as well as your triglycerides. You want those to be on the lower end as well. Now, years ago, we used to just look at just that number, that cholesterol, and say, this number is too high, so we're going to put you on a statin medication. And it wasn't shortly after that that we realized almost everyone was starting on a statin. In fact, statins are the number one most commonly used pharmaceutical drug in the United States. So there was so many people on statin medications, so there needed to be a way to really better identify who needed a statin medication. So the ASCVD score is a score that your doctor can calculate for you. It takes into account some other risk factors that may increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. So in the ASCVD score is also your blood pressure, your age, if you have hypertension or not, your race, ethnicity, and if you're a smoker, these things will all increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. So I always calculate this number for my patients because if this number comes out to be less than 7.5%, even if that total cholesterol number is above 200, you do not need a statin medication because we know that overall your risk is low. So you definitely want to go by an ASCVD score, not just that one statin number. So make sure your doctor has calculated that for you. 
So I want to summarize that again. An ASCVD score is going to give you your risk for a heart disease in the next 10 years. And if it is over 7.5%, you should start on a statin medication or have that discussion with your doctor. If it is less than that, even if your total cholesterol is a little bit high or above that reference range, that means that you are overall at very low risk and you do not need to take a statin medication. Very commonly, I will take patients off their statin medication and give them six months and recheck their lipids and then recalculate an ASCVD score if they say their previous doctor has never done this for them. And I will definitely take them off it is if that number is less than 7.5%. Now, really high risk is if this number is greater than 35%. So at a 35% risk, I really strongly recommend starting a statin. In fact, typically a higher dose statin for my patients. Of course, you want to always remember to kind of clean up those other risk factors. So if you're smoking, finding a way to quit smoking is of absolute high priority. If you're a diabetic, this means trying to look at that metabolic syndrome by reducing the carbohydrates and sugar that you're intaking in your diet in adding in more exercise and lowering that A1C. And if it's blood pressure, you want to get that blood pressure under better control by reducing the salt intake in your diet, exercising, and maybe if you need a blood pressure medication. All those factors will help you bring down your ASCVD risk score. Because if you can stay off a statin, stay off a statin. All right, going on to the next thing you want to talk about with your doctor, which is what is my BMI? Now you all know what a BMI is. It's your weight to height ratio and it spits out a number. And it's really important that you have a conversation with your doctor about your weight because it can be a uncomfortable conversation either for you or your doctor. So it's not uncommon that your doctor might feel a little hesitant to bring it up with you. So say to your doctor, what do you think about my BMI? So let's review what the BMI numbers mean. So a normal BMI is anywhere from 18 to 24. That is really what you want to strive for. Overweight is considered a BMI of 25 to 29.9, and obese is a BMI greater than 30. So obesity is a really big risk factor for many things, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, sleep apnea, depression, um, arthritis in the knees and the hips and other joints. And so if you do have a BMI that is over 30, and that puts you in the obese category, you do want to get a good hold on what you can do to bring that BMI down. As I mentioned, because your weight is such a big risk factor for heart disease, this sort of ties into the ASCVD risk. And I really want to bring home the point that the leading cause of death in women is heart disease. And I always tell my residents in training that this is a really important point to make sure you discuss with your patients, especially for your women. So if I went to my grocery store and I pulled all the patient people in there and asked them what was the number one cause of death, if they were a big group of women, most likely they would worry about things like breast cancer or gynecologic issues, but it is by and far heart disease. And we know that heart disease presents different in women than it does in men, and there's many different presentations of heart disease. So you want to keep your BMI really on your radar. Now, a BMI of 
less than 18 is underweight, that also is can be problematic as well. So you want to strive for a BMI between 18 to 24. That is considered the healthy range. Now, of course, if you are very muscular, oftentimes your BMI might put you in a slightly higher category. And I think that that is still okay. So if your BMI is 27, but you're, you're very athletic, you've got a muscular build, I don't really say you really got to get that BMI down. It really is not only the BMI number itself, but looking at the patient or looking at yourself as a whole. Are you exercising? Are you eating clean? Are you otherwise not smoking and healthy? So while you want to aim for 25 and under, we still want to look at you as a whole. So going on to the number three is blood pressure. So uh, so far, the first three have really been a theme of um, metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease markers. And that's, again, really because heart disease is by and far the leading cause of death in women. So you want to know what your blood pressure is because hypertension is very problematic. The way I explain high blood pressure is when your blood pressure is high, your heart is working extra hard to get all the blood out in each heart stroke or each heartbeat. And that can get a little bit problematic. So your heart actually starts to remodel. And when it remodels, that sounds like it's doing something helpful for you, but it's actually getting bigger or it's hypertrophying is the scientific or medical word. And when it does that, it shifts a little bit, a very smidge. That's what sets you up for heart attacks and stroke. So long-standing high blood pressure can be very dangerous. Make sure that you get your blood pressure checked regularly. Many patients of mine have higher blood pressures than normal when they come to the office. That's called white coat hypertension. And I always tell my patients, keep a diary of your blood pressure at home and let's see what the average blood pressure is. Your blood pressure is very fluid. It's going to go up and down all day. So first thing in the morning when you wake up and you're very relaxed, you should have a nice low blood pressure. But if you checked your blood pressure after you sat in traffic for an hour and you were rushing on your way to work and you spilt your coffee all over yourself, it would probably be much higher. So your real blood pressure is really an average of those two blood pressures. And by the way, even though your blood pressure is high because you're nervous or you are rushing to get to the doctor's office, it still means your heart is feeling that pressure. So it is an explanation, but it doesn't actually excuse or sort of make me forget about that blood pressure. So knowing a good average of your blood pressure is going to help you and your doctor decide if you're in the pre-hypertension range or if you have hypertension. So hypertension is a blood pressure of 140 over 90 or greater on more than one occasion. So if you just have one blood pressure that's that high, you know, you want to make sure that's more of a trend, right? That average. And normal blood pressure is 120 over 80. So you want your blood pressure to be less than 120 over 80. And if it's in between that range, that's what we call prehypertension. This is actually the best time to start recording all your blood pressures. Because if you're in that prehypertensive range, you want to get an idea of if what, what, direction you're headed towards, if you're really more on the normotensive or if you're getting a little bit more hypertensive. So that's a good time to start measuring your blood pressures. And there's lots of blood pressure medications that you can take. And really, the truth is that these medications are very safe. The risks of having long-standing hypertension where your heart remodels and sets you up for a heart attack and stroke is way too great. And it way outweighs the risks of taking any of the antihypertensive medications. 
There's multiple medications on the market, and you and your doctor will have a good conversation about which one is a good one for you to start. Okay, moving on to number four. You want to ask your doctor, what is your A1C value? So for anyone who doesn't know, an A1C is a three-month average of your blood sugars. And it's measured by the way that sugar attaches to red blood cells. That's kind of the interesting fact. And that's why red blood cells last for about three months. So that's why you can get a new A1C every three months. But earlier than that is, is probably too early. So an A1C of greater than 6.5 gives you the diagnosis of diabetes. And if you have an A1C greater than 5.7, this gives you the diagnosis of prediabetes. So in my opinion, diabetes is the hardest disease to live with. It is a chronic disease that you have to think about almost every time you eat something and you eat multiple times every day. So diabetes is a truly difficult disease to live with. So if you can do anything to prevent the onset of diabetes, you should. And knowing your A1C is going to help you do that. Now, if your A1C is in the pre-diabetes range, so if it's between 5.7 and 6.4, there is lots of things that you can do to prevent the onset of full-blown diabetes. So the first thing we usually start with is diet and lifestyle. So by diet, that means cutting out the refined sugars and the carbohydrates because when these are eaten and then they're digested, they actually turn into glucose and it's that insulin resistance that increases your risk for full-blown diabetes. So you want to decrease sugar and carbohydrate intake and you want to increase your exercise. So that one's obvious. Now, if this doesn't move the needle after you try it for about six months, I do recommend that my patients consider trying a medication called metformin or also known as glucophage. Metformin is a really great and safe and pretty well-tolerated medication that can help you prevent the onset of full-blown diabetes. Once you have a diagnosis of diabetes, or if you have a very high A1C or what we consider maybe poorly controlled diabetes, you might at that point benefit from seeing an endocrinologist who will start you on probably some insulin. Okay, moving on to number five. So number five and number six are both preventative screening health questions. So number five is, do I need a mammogram? So This is a really hot topic because internists and gynecologists actually sometimes differ on their opinions of the timeline between mammograms. So internists are now recommending that you get a mammogram at age 50 and you get a mammogram every two years if the following. If you don't have a strong family history of breast cancer, if you don't have a personal history of breast cancer, or if you don't have a BRCA1, BRCA2 mutation, that means that you're not at high risk, so you can consider going every two years. The reason the guidelines changed, because most women think they need to go every single year, but the reason the guidelines changed is because we found there were some risks and some harms associated with having a mammogram every year, i.e. we were basically over-screening women. So when you are over-screened, the risks being over-screened are many. So first and foremost, from what I see, is a lot of false positives. And what a false positive is, is when, you know, there's a concern for breast cancer, but there's not. So a false positive can mean either you need a to go back and have another view. So you'll get a call and say, we need you to come back in, get another view. And a lot of women get very anxious and scared. 
Or not only that, but they'll maybe need a biopsy. So they'll undergo a procedure where a needle is put in the breast tissue only to find out that luckily it's benign. And there's also been a diagnosis of DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ, which we used to treat very aggressively. And actually, we now don't consider DCIS actually cancer. It's a pre-cancer. And while it means you're at higher risk, you might not necessarily need the aggressive treatment like a lumpectomy and chemo and radiation for DCIS because we found that sort of by watching and waiting, most women with early pre-cancers actually go on to lead normal healthy lives and die from other causes. So there is a lot of controversy between um, how often you should get a mammogram and what you should do with a diagnosis of DCIS. And this is going to differ if you're talking to maybe your internist versus an oncologist versus your gynecologist. And that's kind of where the confusion always comes up. Now, other risks of overscreening are, of course, just the anxiety associated with it, the increased cost, and etc. So internists are now recommending that if you don't have a personal family history of breast cancer that's very strong, you could start at age 50 and you can go every two years. So most women are really stuck on getting a mammogram every single year. And, you know, that's probably because there's lots of media around breast cancer awareness. There's lots of races and runs and um, fundraisers and charities. And so again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, most women are very fearful or concerned about breast disease, but it is such a significantly lower risk of dying or having an invasive breast cancer than it is of having heart disease. So I want you to spread that to your friends because that's really the truth. That's really the most important point. Now, if you have been getting mammograms every year and you've had so many normal mammograms and you you kind of think it's a annoying procedure or it's somewhat painful, feel free to talk to your doctor about going every two years. Moving on to the next one is, when do I need a pap smear? And this conversation I have almost inevitably with all of my patients at least once a year. And again, there's a sort of a um, idea that's sort of deeply rooted that you need a mammogram every year and you need a pap smear every year. Now, mammograms insurance will still pay for you to do every year, even though you can now sort of switch to doing every two years. But a pap smear is a totally different story, and I really want to break this down for you. If you have had numerous normal pap smears and you're over the age 30, you do not need another pap smear for five years. Yes, five years, five whole years. And a normal pap smear is both a normal cytology and a negative HPV. So HPV is a virus that actually causes cervical cancer. So we know that if your HPV is negative, the chances of you getting HPV and then going on to getting cervical cancer are very low. So let's say you're listening to this and you're 45 and you've had three or four normal pap smears with a negative HPV, you most likely do not need a pap smear for five whole years. Now, this same principle applies if you're under age 30, except it's every three years. So if you're 27 and your last pap smear and your HPV was negative and your pap was normal, then you don't need another one for three years. So let me sort of summarize that because I want you to take this in because you do not need a pap smear every year. If you are over age 30 and you've had one or two normal paps, that means the cytology and the HPV were negative, you do not need a pap smear for five whole years. If you're under the age of 30, if you're 21 to 29, and you've had one negative 
pap cytology and negative HPV, you do not need another pap smear for three years. Now, if you say I've had an abnormal pap smear or I've had something called ASCIS or LCIL or a positive HPV, then that's different. And you follow a little algorithm and your doctor will tell you if you need another pap in six months or in 12 months. So then that means you're in, you're going to go kind of follow this little algorithm. But if you have always had normal paps, you do not need one for a long time. Now, a lot of my patients don't understand this because they want to make sure they're not going to get cervical cancer. So here's why we can sleep at night not worrying about scraping the cervix. So HPV is sexually transmitted virus, and the virus is actually what goes on to cause the cervical cancer. Now, if you're, say, you're 37 and you have a partner or you're married and you're, you haven't had HPV or, you know, the last PAPs you had didn't show any HPV, you're monogamous with the same person. You're not going to acquire HPV, so you're not going to get cervical cancer. So there's so many other things we want to worry about when you're 37 if you've had normal pap smears and we don't need to scrape the cervix again. Now, you should have every one or two years a vaginal exam just to look at the tissue and ensure you've got good pelvic tone and that the cervix looks healthy, but you don't necessarily need the pap smear itself. Another question is, what age should you first get a pap smear? And most gynecologists and internists now recognize that you do not need a pap smear until you're age 21. Even if you've been sexually active, we've found that we're over-screening that population that's less than age 21. So you do not need a pap smear unless you're age 21. So I hope I just blew your mind and explained that for you because I had that conversation inevitably once or twice a day, really trying to reassure my patients that it's okay to go several years without a pap smear. And the last one on my list is you want to talk to your doctor and make sure your immunizations are up to date. So I'm going to review quickly the important immunizations. So your tetanus is the one if you step on a rusty nail, you want to have that tetanus up to date. That's your Tdap and that one is due every 10 years. The tetanus injection will make your arm a little sore for a couple of days. So I always say I'm so sorry, but it's only once every 10 years. The two that help prevent pneumonia are called the pneumococcal vaccines, and there is two. There's pneumococcal, and then there is a new one called Prevnar, and you can get those before age 65 and then again after age 65. And then the last one that I often talk to my patients about is the shingles vaccine. The old one was called Zostifax. The new one is called Shingrex, and that came out in late 2017. It's much more efficacious than Zostivax. So if you did get the old one, I still recommend getting the new one just because it's going to be more preventative so that you don't get a shingles outbreak. And of course, there is the flu vaccine that you can get every year. Now, you know, a lot of patients will say, I don't like getting the flu vaccine. I always get the flu. So if your doctor did not explain this to you, the reason that you can feel sort of crummy after the flu vaccine is because your body is reacting to that vaccine and it does have a influenza-like reaction to it. Now, the theory is it's better to have a two or three day influenza-like illness than it is to 
die from the flu because, of course, every year people die from the flu. So it's really not that you get the flu shot and then you catch the flu or it gives you the flu. It's that your body is doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is making antibodies so that if you actually do get infected with influenza, you can better fight it off. So have that conversation with your doctor every year on if you should get a flu shot. I most highly recommend this if you have comorbidities, which means you carry other diagnoses such as COPD or lung disease like emphysema, if you have diabetes, if you have high blood pressure, even if you're a smoker and you're, and you're overweight and you're otherwise healthy, I would still recommend getting a yearly flu vaccine. And of course, I recommend it for everyone, but especially if you're at a high risk. All right, so that's all I have for you today. So we went over seven things you want to make sure you ask your doctor or keep on your personal health radar so that you stay wonderfully healthy into your 30s, 40s, 50s, midlife, and beyond. Because how you treat yourself in your 30s and 40s really predicts if you're going to have an excellent 60s and beyond or if it's going to be filled with health problems. So we talked about knowing your ASCVD score and if it's great greater than 7.5 or greater than 35% than having a conversation about starting a statin. But if it's lower than 7.5%, not needing a statin. Knowing your BMI, knowing your blood pressure, knowing your A1C and keeping it below 5.7 if possible so that you prevent the onset of diabetes. We talked about mammograms and that if you don't have a strong family history or personal history, you could go every two years. We talked about pap smears, only needing one every five years. If you're over 30 and you've had several normal pap smears, or if you are under 30 and you've had normal pap smears, it's every three years. And we just quickly went over some important immunizations that you always want to be up to date with. So if I didn't explain something thoroughly, if you have any remaining questions, please always feel free to send me a comment, an email, find a way to message me because I want to make sure I'm answering the questions that you have. So thanks so much for listening in. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day or evening, and I hope you listen in again. Thanks so much. Bye.